What are we going to do on Christmas morning? Well, I know what I'm doing. We're going to keep going with Job. So let's, uh, let's turn to Job 19. Um, if you need the text, it's also in your bulletin. You can look at the back. I'm not sure what page it's on, but I know it's there. Uh, Jeanette works very hard at organizing this for me and keeping me organized with the liturgy and the bulletin. Um, what does the book of Job have to do with Christmas? That's what you all are wondering. And those of you that are visiting, I, I know you're wondering that. And we could say it this way. What does the book of Job have to do with Jesus? That's even a better question. Um, well, in Job 19, Job discovers the answer for himself. And the answer uh, that's there changes him on the spot. Uh, the answer that is found in Job 19 changes Job. Now, it doesn't change his suffering and it doesn't change his pain. It just changes him. He's not the same. The book's not the same as a result of what's found in chapter 19. In other words, the book as a whole and Job as an individual change. The whole book shifts. This is the cataclysmic corner, the cosmic uh, intersection of all of Job right here on Christmas today. I'm excited. Aren't y'all excited? Good night. We're finally here. I mean, this is the chapter of all of Job. This, this is inspired what? Those of you that are musicians, Handel's Messiah, this chapter. So this is, uh, this is a pretty powerful chapter, and it's kind of intimidating, but I'm very excited to, uh, to unpack this with you together. Here's the deal. Job's no longer the same person after this. Uh, he no longer sees God the same. He no longer sees himself the same. He no longer sees his pain and his suffering the same. Remember, his pain and suffering continues. You're, we're going to keep going. It doesn't go away. But how he sees it, how he relates to it has changed. He doesn't see his friends the same. He doesn't see his world the same. He doesn't see any area of life the same. He's changed. And it took 19 chapters to do it. Uh, if we were to kind of calculate it in a temporal sense, this is probably close to a year, even longer. 19 chapters of punishing pain. 19 chapters of processing pain. 19 chapters of praying pain. And in the Bible, real change is like that. It takes a while. It's a slow, progressive, painful, messy, hard to pin down, uh, a process, more like a steady soaking rain and less than a thunderstorm less than the flick of a light switch, less than, aha, it just happened, I'm different. Biblical change is more like what we see in Job. We could say biblical change or real Christianity is right on display for us in Job's life as a gift to you, okay? Now, 
uh, all because Christmas comes to Job 19 is why Job changes on the spot. All because Jesus shows up to Job in Job 19, he changes on the spot. Uh, and what we got to do, though, before we even get into the change, before we even look at what's going on, we've got to ask the obvious question, and that's this, or state it for ourselves. Nobody really likes change. I mean, let's be honest. We really don't like change. Uh, rarely do we go looking for it, and we have our reasons. We don't go looking for it because we really uh, don't like the loss of control. We don't like the loss of familiarity, do we? We don't like the, the sense of uncertainty. We don't like the sense of, of not knowing what's coming next. We, we might have a sense that there's some new expectations and new standards and new people to please that might be involved with change, right? It might be that you know your new boss is a little Stalin. You don't want that kind of change. There's, there's a sense in which change might seem like it's less than, less fullness, less freedom for you, less happiness for you. That's why we don't like change. Uh, it might be also a sense in which the new change um, seems to be bringing something or causing you to lose something that you feel is fullness and is freedom. If we go on looking for change, it's usually only because we're desperate. We don't really go looking for change. It's usually when we're desperate. It's usually when our backs are against the wall. It's usually when the marriage is falling apart. It's usually when we're falling apart. It's usually when we can't stand life the way it is that we start to go seek for it. Now, here's the good news for those of us, and that's probably all of us, that do not like change or rarely seek it. And it doesn't matter whether you're, you've been in church your whole life. It doesn't matter whether you're new Christian or whether you're a skeptic of Christian. The change in Job 19 is not what we think. That's the greatest news you could probably hear. It's not what we think it is. So, for instance, the real change in Job 19 is not be more religious we know we've got three friends that that's their, that's their technique to change. Their way of changing is, Job, be more religious. Pray more. Read your Bible more. Go to church more. Buy more Thomas Kincaid artwork. That kind of change, right? Go into your iPod or your iTunes system and delete all your Metallica and ACDC music. In other words, fullness and freedom comes to you because you're good. Be, get more fullness, get more freedom by being good. That's not the kind of change that's talked about here. That's great news. But also the kind of change that's talked about here is not be more self-pampering. So it's not think of yourself more. It's not live for yourself more. It's not indulge yourself more. It's not, I need to please myself more. I need to find who I am. It's not that kind of a change. It's not going to your iPod and delete all your Sandy Patty and Amy Grant music. I'd delete that stuff anyway. <laughs> I wouldn't even have it. Change in Job 19 is not freedom and fullness by being bad. So the good news about Job 19 is that the change that we usually seek and the change that we usually 
look for, it's not what we think. Being more religious and being more irreligious cannot deliver the goods. They're basically the same. They're different strategies of the same thing. They're both efforts of trying to save ourselves. They're both efforts or ways of trying to generate your own security, your own uh, salvation, your own fullness, your own freedom, your own change. And they can't carry the burden of Godhood. So what we have here is in Job 19, welcome to a different kind of change. Real change. The kind that reaches you. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to look at 19. I'm going to read probably most of it. All right, then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with your words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains within myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me. Know then that God has put me in the wrong and has closed his net about me. Behold, I cry violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way, so I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together against me. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamped around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me, and all my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I have loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. That's where that came from. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom shall I see for myself, and whom my eyes shall behold and not another? My heart faints within me. If you say, how will he pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would unpack the wonders of this passage. We acknowledge that the depths of them are beyond us. Uh, The joy and the power and the salvation that's in them is measureless. And so we ask that you, Holy Spirit, uh, would begin uh, to further us in opening up the wonders that are here. 
And would we see them just as Job saw them? And would we uh, change on the spot just as Job changed on the spot? And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right. Not only do we rarely like change, but when we finally want it, when we finally feel the need for it, when we finally go after it, it's nowhere to be found. And so we become agnostic about change. You know, we, we think, well, maybe it's out there, maybe it's not, but I'm not really interested in spending that much more energy looking around for it, right? Uh, well, Job, if that's you, Job gets that. He gets you. The hope for change is not on Job's radar anymore. It's left. The first part of this passage is very, very clear. He's starving for change. He's starving for understanding. He's starving for some compassion. He's starving for someone to give him mercy. Two times in verse 21, he says, have mercy on me, my friends. Have mercy. I mean, he's looking for a little humanity from someone. He's hoping for change. He, he's starving for it, but there's no food. There's no change. There's nothing coming. Uh, In fact, he's avoided, he's forgotten, he's rejected by everyone. And that's what this passage chronicles, stuff we're familiar with, but it's worth repeating again. If you look at verses 1 through 6, he's he's avoided and forgotten by all his three friends. That's what's happening in verses 1 through 6. Then you got 7 through 12, he's forgotten, rejected, abandoned, avoided by God himself. And that goes 7 through 12. And then he starts listing a whole list of every relative he can think of. And every close, he goes from his brothers to his sisters, he goes to his mom, he goes to his wife, he goes to uh, distant relatives, and then he starts going into the community and the neighborhood he lives in, and then he starts going into just those who give a nodding acquaintance to him. Everyone has avoided him, forgotten him, rejected him. He's done with change. He's done with it. He's not looking for it anymore. He doesn't expect it. All the wells of change have dried up for Job. Okay? That's the context here. Uh, and and we got to ask now, how, have you ever wondered, though, what is it that you really or Job really wants out of change? What's he really looking for? What's the heart of change? What does he really want out of it? What's he deeply seeking or craving with change? What is he really after? I mean, beyond his circumstances. So he's looking for change beyond, uh, beyond getting his estate back, beyond the bad job, beyond the certain salary. He's looking for change for something beyond his circumstances changing. But he's also looking for something beyond people changing, his relationships changing, right? I mean, the conflict that we have, the, uh, the, the relationships that have gone sour, the realities that involve in our relationships, whether it's we're a single person and we want that to change or we're married and we want kids, but we can't have kids and that can't happen. He's looking for change beyond circumstances, beyond relationships, and even beyond himself, beyond his personal state. So beyond his restlessness and beyond his sense of not being content and beyond the sin that he struggles with and beyond the fears that he has to deal with. He's looking for something beyond this kind of change. What do we really want out of change? Look at verse 23 and 24. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with the iron pen and lead, they were engraved on the rock forever. 
verse 1 through 22 is a long list of folks who don't believe Job is righteous, innocent, blameless. He just has a litany of everyone forsaking him, everyone abandoning him, everyone rejecting him, everyone saying your doom and your disaster is your own deserving. Your doom and your disasters are evidence of a bad performance somewhere in your life. And it's an evidence that God is punishing you. So for this long list that we just went through, 1 through 22, for these folks, the way God works, the way the world works is a religious world. It's a world, if you do this, then God will do this. And so this is evidence that you've messed up somewhere, and that's why this is happening to you. Job is craving and he's longing for a permanent, fixed, rock-solid record of his righteousness. Oh, I wish. I wish it was written down on a scroll and in a book. No, better yet, stone with an iron pen. I am righteous before everybody. Job is looking and craving and longing to be justified before God and before man and before the entire cosmos. He wants to be okay, approved, accepted, and everyone to know it. Job craves for a deeply personal and widely public declaration that he's righteous before the whole cosmos. Then he will be okay. Then everything will be secure. And he will finally be at rest. And that is what we all want. And that is what drives every one of us in this room. Every one of you want to be okay no matter what, right? Now, not knowing this, not knowing that you are okay no matter what, not knowing that you have a permanent, fixed, rock-solid record of declared acceptance and approvability and that you're pleasing and you're well done, good and faithful servant, not having that is why we fear making mistakes in front of others. Not feeling that, not knowing that, not having that pushed into your experience is why we fight and quarrel with each other. It's why we think money will bring us security and that money will keep disasters and doom away from us. Not knowing that we're okay no matter what pushed into our life is why we strive to get in certain social circles and to have certain positions of leadership and to have certain places of influence. That's why we do that. Not knowing or feeling this deeply that we're okay no matter what is why we leave our spouse emotionally, legally. It's why we indulge in destructive behavior. It's why we flee painful situations and circumstances, and it's why we are ineffective in ministry and ineffective in loving each other and ineffective in serving each other. Because this 
sense of knowing deep in your soul that you're okay no matter what isn't there. Job is on to something here, and he's on to something that drives every single one of us, the need for a permanent record of righteousness, the need to know that you are accepted cosmically and that you are okay no matter what. Now, don't miss this. Did you hit it? Don't miss this. That's what Job longs for. That's what he craves for, and God gives it beyond his wildest dreams. Because permanently fixed forever in the inscripturated word of God is Job's history. And the declaration way back from chapter 1 through chapter 2, you are righteous. You are holy and blameless before me. And now he's recorded it before all the angels. He's recorded it before the Satan. It's recorded forever, fixed permanently in the Holy Scriptures, Job's history, just as he longed for beyond his imagination, beyond his wildest dreams. He, his story, his righteousness is written in the Word of God for everyone to see, for the rocks and the trees to see for the galaxies and the stars to see, for the angelic and the invisible world to see, and for the visible world to see, for you and I to see. It's absolutely above and beyond his wildest dreams. God actually gives it. Job is righteous, accepted, approved, okay no matter what. So here's the point. Change, the change that we're really looking for, to be okay no matter what, change, the kind of change we're really looking for, to be okay no matter what, to have a permanent fixed record of our righteousness, God loves to give it. He rushes in to give it. He delights to give it. God is not withholding or holding anything back on Job. He's not hesitant He's not holding his cards at his chest. He's not that, I don't know who the guy is anymore, but it's the same guy because he looks like he's been there forever. Behind door number one, behind door number two, behind door number, he doesn't play those kind of games with us here. God loves to give it. So instead, what we find here is God's actually going over the top. He actually is extravagant. He actually spends everything he's got. He's actually over generous and he's actually over convincing and over assuring. If Paul was here, he'd say he's abounding. That God is actually abounding and giving a permanent record of righteousness. He loves to do that. So God loves to justify the sinner. God loves to make that which is unacceptable, acceptable. God can't wait. He rushes in to take that which is unrighteous and make it righteous. He delights to take that which is not okay and make it okay no matter what. Popular theologian, author, speaker, seminary professor, radio talk show host, what else is there? Michael Horton puts it this way. Justification is the fiat declaration, let there be righteousness where there's never been any. Let there be light in darkness, let there be righteousness where there's not. 
Now, uh, how do you know this is for sure? I mean, how can you bank on that? How do you know that, that God really delights to go over the top and give you a permanent righteousness to actually they give you the kind of change that we're all really looking for, the kind of change that you're okay no matter what, the kind of change that reaches the deepest part of your soul, actually makes you alive and actually sends you out into the world, the kind of change that ultimately matters and that everyone from prostitute to businessman is looking for. What is it? How do you know this? How do we know this? And then... How can God do this and not be unrighteous? How can God take what is unacceptable, declare it acceptable, and still be righteous? How can God take something that's unrighteous, declare it to be righteous, and still be good? How can God take something that's not okay and it's messed up and it's deeply flawed, declare it to be okay, and to declare it to be welcomed and taken in and still be holy. How can that happen? Look at verse 25. The verse, right? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. In the ancient Near East, a Redeemer was your next of kin. It was your nearest, closest family member. Priority was given to the older brother. A redeemer was needed when you were in a bad place and you couldn't fix it. When you were in tremendous need and you couldn't do anything about it. In the ancient Near East, an Old Testament, the examples would be things like uh, setting free property that's under debt, You can't pay it. Your property, your estate, your inheritance, it's under debt. It's under someone else's debt, and you can't pay it. A redeemer steps in. Your next of kin, your closest family member, your nearest family member, your older brother, right? Also, an animal from slaughter, setting free an animal from slaughter, uh, setting free a person from slavery and death, uh, setting free a person's name or their honor and their sense of respect in the community when it's dishonored and it's disrespected and it's been shamed and it's setting that free. That's one of the examples. Another example is when you've done something wrong, the family, you've done something wrong and the, the kinsman redeemer, the, the relative comes in and redresses your wrongs. The other example is this, that uh, you've been uh, murdered. Innocent blood was spilt, and it's yours. And this kinsman redeemer exacts justice. And then finally, uh, this kinsman redeemer would take up your innocence. If you're innocent and you're in court and need someone to represent you and someone to speak for you, someone to plead your case, someone to stand there with you, this person steps in. So the kinsman redeemer was responsible to restore all the freedom, all the fortune, even the life of someone in their family who was in a bad place and couldn't do it themselves. Okay? But here's the catch. This redeemer, this kinsman redeemer, did it at great cost to himself. 
So for instance, the redeemer would take upon himself all the payments, all the loss, all the debt. He would take upon himself all the shame, all the guilt, all the dishonor, all the disrespect. He would take it upon himself all the loss of his time, all the loss of his emotional energy, all the loss of his uh, appearance in the community and his status in the community. He'd take upon himself his own property and his possessions, his own estate, his own inheritance. So this person would lower himself so he could raise someone else. This person would suffer loss so the other person could get great gain. This person would become less so others would become more. Just to redeem his kin. What Job is saying here is that God is my redeemer. God is my next of kin. God is my nearest relative. God is my older brother. And he will, he will do it. He will come into my bad place and he'll fix it. All of Job's brothers and his family and his relatives have rejected him, abandoned him, forsaken him, except one. God. There we have it. It's all it is. God will spend himself, all of himself, to justify Job before the entire cosmos. You know that phrase in verse 25 where it says, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. This has scholars and theologians all twisted up. Everybody's trying to figure out what that means. I mean, you can read journals, you can read commentaries. It's divided, it's heated, it's how, how can he say this because of this and how can they say this because of that? Well, I put myself in the camp that agrees with this meaning of what Job is saying. Here it is, you ready? Quote, my heavenly redeemer, my older brother will stand on this earth and have the last word of my justification. My heavenly redeemer, my divine older brother will stand on this earth and have the last word of my justification. Job saw a shadow of Jesus Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. I mean, think about this, y'all. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. God prepared a body for him so he could be our next of kin, our nearest relative, our true older brother. And the one who will go into our bad places and fix it. The one in whom and by whom you can receive a permanent 
record of righteousness before the cosmos, before God, before the Satan, before the rocks, before the trees, before each other, before yourself, in your relationships, at work, with the way you handle suffering and pain and the way you deal with problems and troubles that come in your life. All of that, a permanent record of righteousness that you're okay no matter what. So he came, Jesus came to be the kinsman redeemer to justify his kin, to justify his brothers and sisters, to take upon himself all our losses, all our debts, all our messes, all our sin, all our guilt, all our shame, all our failures, all our flaws, everything that's messed up in the world. He came and took all those losses that were necessary to make right. And then not only that, he took upon himself all our righteousness, all our freedoms, our fortunes, our fullness, our acceptance, our security, our okayness, and secured it permanently for us. Because his brothers and sisters are in a bad place and can't fix it. And when every other kin and every other relative in any other area of our life we look to to redeem us, flees from us, forgets us, abandons us, he doesn't. All except one. He can fix it. He did fix it. And it's all of grace. It's all of love, it's all of mercy, it's all of compassion. Uh, there was a terrible fire that broke out in a crowded building, and Jane Zorick and her husband were in the building. Now, she got out. Her husband did not. Why did she get out? And her husband didn't. It was not because she was faster. It's not because she had better eyesight and got the exit sign earlier. It's not because she was more intelligent or a better problem solver and she could dissect where everything was and find the escape hatch. It's not because she was physically stronger and it's not because she had a a more powerful will to live. She also didn't get out because she was just plain lucky. And she didn't get out because it was fate, chance. She only got out because of her husband. Because he saved her. And the words she says still ring powerfully in her head every day. And the words were these. One of us has to get out for the kids. And then she said, and then he chose me. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. When Jesus set his foot on this earth 2,000 years ago, and he did in a manger... And he did in a place called Bethlehem. And he did it with the lowliest, least popular people in the whole world all around him. He 
was choosing you. I'll be your kinsman redeemer. I'm your next of kin. I'm your older brother and I choose you. When you get this, when I get this, when we get this, whether it's for the first time or whether it's as a Christian in bigger and brighter and better ways get this, you know what happens to us? We change. Real change. Fullness floods into your soul. Freedom floods into your soul. Happiness floods into your soul. Security fills your soul. Strength of another kind is present. You change. You are okay no matter what. I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand on this earth. Do you know that? Do you know that?